Okay, let's um, let's pray, uh, and we will begin today. Father, Lord, thank you again, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, thank you that you are gracious to us in every season. Thank you that you um, have sent to us, Lord, a sympathetic high priest who cares for us and cares about us and, Lord, can sympathize with our weaknesses. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Um, thank you that he came and took on human flesh and, and came into our our frailty, Lord, and understood what it was, Lord, to be in pain and understood what it was to be weakened and, Lord, even to suffer temptation yet without sin. Lord, we're grateful for him and and we're so grateful for your son, Lord, and all that he's done for us. Lord, bless our time. Lord, give us understanding and wisdom into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well... Um, we're just trucking along here in systematic theology, and uh, we have been studying thus far the doctrine of man, and next on the agenda is the doctrine of Christology, but before we get there, uh, Wayne Grudem has a very important chapter um, on the covenants, the covenants uh, of God with man, and uh, so I thought we would, we would tackle that and look a, a little bit at that. Now, throughout um, the history of the church, uh, people have tried to understand uh, the relationship of man in various ways, and a very simple way to understand it is through uh, the covenants that God has established. God, of course, reveals himself as a covenant-keeping God, and uh, there are many, many covenants in the Bible, some of them explicit, uh, some of them not so Explicit, maybe more implicitly, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the reality of a covenant is something that is undeniable in the Bible. God is a God of covenants. I would dare to say that God doesn't do anything apart from covenants, uh, which is kind of a fascinating thing. And what is a covenant? Let me read you uh, Wayne Grudem's definition of a covenant. He says, a covenant is an unchangeable divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. It stipulates the conditions of their relationship. And so um, various theologians have also defined covenants in different ways. Uh, maybe a more developed idea of a covenant, especially as different covenants progress, like the Abrahamic covenant and whatnot, uh, they would also say that a covenant is a sacred bond, often sealed in blood, often sealed in blood. You see that with the Abrahamic covenant when God parts the animals in half and causes Abraham to fall asleep and God sort of symbolically runs through the midst of the pieces of animals symbolizing the sealing in blood so that if the covenant is violated, uh, you, know, the, you know, blood would have to be shed. And so <clears throat> I guess we have to talk about the different stipulations of the covenant that, that God made with his creatures and different covenants bring different stipulations. And today I want to look at, um, I want to look at a implicit covenant and that is the Adamic, Adamic covenant. Now that has been called different things in the history of theology, um, covenant of works, is one of the ways that it has been described, and uh, 
Uh, although I would not ascribe to every aspect, maybe, of the covenant of works, I think definitely a basic relationship, and I think probably a covenantal relationship, did exist between God and Adam. Now, of course, you have to understand that uh, in the history of Adam, we're dealing with primeval history, which means we are in the, in the most primitive stages, the most primitive stages of redemptive history, so that not all of the vocabulary is going to be present uh, just in the first couple of chapters of, of, uh, of Genesis. But I think we do have the, um, I think we do have the, the essential elements uh, of the covenant because some people tend to think, well, you know, it doesn't say covenant. There is no word covenant. And the Hebrew word is berit. The Greek word is dia. Diathike. Um, so these words uh, are the technical terms, the official terms for the covenant relationship with man. Now, uh, n neither berit nor any of the um, synonyms that may be found uh, with berit are used in Genesis. So sometimes God speaks about binding himself with an oath. That would be a way to introduce a covenant relationship with God, is the oath that he makes, the fact that he swears. We're going to find a lot of that, actually, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but some of the elements are here. Again, let me quote Grudem. He says, And all of the elements of a covenant are present in this relationship with, uh, with Adam. Uh, he says, A clear stipulation of the parties is involved a statement of the conditions of the covenant, and a promise of blessing for obedience and punishment for disobedience. So there you have just the very basic structure of what we're looking at in Genesis. First, you have a clear stipulation of the parties that are involved. So there, obviously, it is God and man. Man, obviously the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, there, that's Hebrew. <laughs> little transliteration there. Um, Adam is just the Hebrew word that, you know, that means man, mankind. Um, and uh, those are the parties that are stipulated. Again, very primitively, but very beautifully. There's an elegance, there's a beauty, I think, to it. When you begin to look at the covenant structure of Scripture, I think it's really amazing what God has revealed. And then also... Uh, a statement of the conditions of the covenant. Now, what are the conditions of the covenant? Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Beginning in verse 15. It says there, Genesis 2, 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, to cultivate and to keep it. To, cult to cultivate and to keep it essentially summarizes the obligations or the stipulations, the conditions of the covenant. Um, and notice the sovereign imposition of the covenant, okay, of the relationship here. The Lord God took the man and put him into the, into the Garden of Eden. <laughs> so there, I mean, we have total divine imposition. God sovereignly is choosing to enter into a relationship with man. Now, the reason why I find this to be very significant, okay, is because um, on college campus, uh, a lot of young people think they have absolutely no dealings with, with God. 
They think they are completely autonomous from God. They have no relationship with God whatsoever. That God is just sort of a, a, a figment of the imagination of Christians. And they really live very much God-ignoring, God-minimizing, and ultimately God-hating lives. And it's just amazing to think so that man and his basic idea, his basic religious idea, is that he has no relationship with God. And that is where humanism really comes from, this idea that man is completely autonomous, completely independent of God, no strings attached, he has no religious obligation to God whatsoever, and therefore can be the, the, the determiner of his own uh, destiny. Have you guys experienced that? Right? We all experience that. Right? Prior to Christ, when we were, if you were, if you would, in Adam, when we were in our covenant head, Adam, we tried as much as possible to live our lives hiding in the bushes, so to speak, like Adam, right? Ignoring or like uh, like Cain, hiding from God and hiding from the voice of God. And as Romans chapter one verse. Uh, 18 tells us trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness trying to ignore our relationship with God trying to ignore the fact that we do have a God over us and uh, that's exactly what society today tries to live like they try to live as if they have no uh, connection to the Almighty whatsoever and 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 that if you do want a connection with the Almighty well that's something you choose for yourself but uh, right here, we are told that God is the one that chose to be in relationship with his people. God took the man, and what came with the man? All of mankind came with the man, right? Uh, he represented all of us, as we're going to go on uh, to see. But there, we are told that he was called to cultivate and to keep the garden. Look at, uh, let's keep going here. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. So certain obligations are placed on the man. He must cultivate the garden. He is allowed to freely partake of any tree, and he's given a prohibition, which is do not eat of this one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? And not only are the conditions laid down, but also the penalty, the consequences for breaking the covenant. And that's why they see a covenant structure here, because not only is there, uh, the parties are involved, not only is there a statement about the conditions of the covenant, but there's even the promise of blessing and the threat of curse, and curse is exactly what you find in chapter 3 after the fall. You find in verse 14 God saying to the serpent, cursed are, excuse me, uh, yeah, to the serpent, cursed are you more than all cattle. So curses followed the breach of this relationship, this covenant with man. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible at all that would seem to explicitly, as much as possible, suggest that Adam and God were in covenant with one another, anyone at all? Any, any verse, if somebody puts you on the spot and says, where is the Bible say Adam was in covenant with God? Can you think of a verse? John's thinking of it because yeah, I've told it to him before. Right? There is one verse. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Because this is kind of a crux interpretum. This is, in other words, this is a crucial interpretive text 
okay, that uh, depending how you interpret this passage will, you know, to some degree largely, you know, uh, not I, this, it's not going to be a decisive issue, but it's certainly, um, it, it, it's certainly going to uh, either strengthen your, uh, your, uh, your argument or weaken it, okay, or weaken it. Let's see here, beginning in verse 7, you have this analogy between the children of Israel and Adam. It says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dwelt, dealt treacherously against me. Now, I don't have time to develop all of the syntactical arguments here, but uh, scholars have gone back and forth to what is, what is implied by like Adam, ki Adam. That's the prepositional phrase. Uh, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Uh, the only option is that this is speaking locatively and not that this is a prepositional relationship, but he's saying, uh, what others would be saying is that uh, it's actually teaching that Adam is a location. At Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Uh, that is, um, you know, as most, at least most of the commentaries that I read, uh, a very, very minor uh, opinion. Uh, it's, it's not held by very many people because it, key is not really, uh, the word key, the preposition, doesn't really have the word doesn't really have the meaning of at. I mean, it's a very rare construction uh, for that to have, uh, to, to, to be the proper translation. So, but the analogy is that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So uh, Israel obviously transgressed the covenant. What covenant is that speaking about? What covenant did Israel transgress? The Mosaic covenant. We could say the old covenant, right? Uh, and so the question then is, what covenant did Adam transgress? See, and so they would say that, well, the, even the children of Israel understood Adam was in covenant relationship with God. Certainly makes sense to me. I mean, like I said, I can't think of anything that God does outside of covenants. You know what I mean? Outside of covenants. I mean, before the world was, and we're going to look at this closer next week, Lord willing, uh, I believe that God made a covenant even prior to the creation of the world, known as the covenant of redemption. Messianic covenant, or a, a covenant with the Messiah, a covenant with Jesus Christ. So, uh, sort of a, an intra-Trinitarian covenant between the members of the Godhead, and I think there's a lot uh, to commend that idea. So, <clears throat> so just again, important uh, to see that passage, Hosea 6, 7. Another passage that's also very, very vital is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 introduces, as we talked about last time, um, let, me, let me do this. Uh, it introduces this concept of federalism. Federalism. That God works along federalism or federalistic lines, that we have a legal representative before God. All of mankind has a legal representative. There's no question about it. Everybody does, and this is why, um, this is why, uh, when you talk to people on the street, really you're only talking to two kinds of people. Either you're in Adam one, that's a one. You're either in Adam one or you're in Adam two. You're either in the first Adam or you're in the second Adam. That's it, because Scripture teaches very plainly. Where are we at? Romans 5. Okay, just see if you're listening. 
Romans chapter 5. Yeah, because there we are given again this parallel of what is going on with Christ is somewhat of what was going on with Adam. So in Romans chapter 5, you have this, you know, you have this, um, you have this parallel between the two heads so that Adam represents all of his people. Whoops, wow. Like oil on the floor or something? What's going on? Uh, Adam, too, represents all of his people. Um, you have to be careful here because, let's look at a verse here, Romans chapter 5. Um, Yeah, so Romans tw uh, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death spread to s death through sin, so death spread to all men because all died. Now, there is no question whatsoever there that uh, Adam uh, is our representative and that because of him, all of mankind is under sin. But by the time you get to the end of the parallel here in verse uh, in verse uh, 18, it says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, kind of the same thing as verse 12 is saying, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And so some have said, well, that is clearly teaching universalism, right? Because who did Adam represent? All of mankind. No exceptions, correct? So then the question is, is who did Christ represent? Who did the second Adam represent? And if we say, well, he represented all of mankind, well, then guess what? All of mankind would be justified. So it is better to conceive of the fact that Adam is representing his humanity. Jesus is representing his humanity, right? Well, what is Jesus doing on planet Earth? He is creating a new humanity. He is recreating all things. We are, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are new creations in Christ. This new creation idea, okay, um, is, is really an amazing uh, thing. Um, you can see it all the way back in the garden. All the way back in the garden. Since the fall, uh, God has intended for us to look for the new creation. How do we know that? Because he puts a symbol of life, a symbol, I would say, of the new creation in the garden. It's the, gar it's the tree of life. And that tree reemerges again where in the Bible? Revelation. Book of Revelation. So it's kind of like the tree of life is like a bookend that encloses the whole redemptive plan of God, right? Which is really the tree of life. Is there going to be a physical tree there? We're going to each go up, billions of people are going to go up to this tree and partake of its fruit. For all you literalists, yes, okay, great. There'll be a tree there. <laughs> I'll see you in line. <laughs> but more importantly is what does the tree represent? The tree represents life, eternal life. You see, everything that Adam forfeited, Jesus Christ gained, right? And so what are we seeing as the breach of covenant, the breach of the agreement in Genesis. What, are we, what, what is the result of that? If you go to chapter 3 of Genesis, we know that it says in verse 22, let the Lord God said, 322, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Isn't that amazing? So it's almost like Adam was in a probationary period. Had he obeyed, had he done what was right, he could have eaten of the tree of life and had perpetual life, had eternal life. But because he failed, guess what? The right to the tree of life was taken away. And that is precisely what we are told in Revelation. In Revelation, what is it? Uh, Revelation 21, 14, I think it is. In Revelation, I think it's 21, 14, we are given the authority, the exousia, the right to the tree of life. Where does that authority come from? It doesn't come from us. <laughs> it comes from our federal representative. It comes from Jesus Christ, who where Adam failed, Jesus, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. He kept God's laws perfectly, all of his commandments. He fulfilled his covenant obligations perfectly to God. And therefore, God gave to him a kingdom. And he gives to us his righteousness. And he gives to him the, the, the authority to give life to whomever he wills. And... Uh, Everything we lost in Adam is restored. The curse is reversed. And what a, what a beautiful symbol of that. Um, what a beautiful symbol of that. So you have all of these parallels with, between Adam and, uh, and, uh, and Jesus that are very important. So not only are the legal stipulations of the covenant laid down between God and man, but also the consequences the consequences. Look at the Genesis 2.16, just to look at this a little bit closer. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And so death is the consequence of breaking this agreement with God. Now how do we understand this, um, this idea that uh, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Did Adam, in fact, die that day? Did he die that day? Yes, that's right. The, the answer is not no, because you've already conceded, uh, okay, what, the, what people are asking there. But uh, yes, he died that day. He died spiritually, right? And so how do we understand this death? This is an extensive death. So the death that he died was extensive, meaning physically, uh, spiritually, um, and uh, uh, th that's how he died. Uh, and he began to die that very moment. He began to undergo decay that very moment. He, be he began to be aware of his, of his fallen humanness. He saw himself, uh, him and Eve, they understood that they were naked. They understood that they were fallen. They became ashamed, right? The consequences of breaking covenant with God. Uh, is shame. And this is a, a repeated theme throughout the history of Israel. Over and over and over again, you see this very same thing, right? And the stipulations of the Old Covenant in general, uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, you see there that God promises terrible, terrible judgments for breaking his covenant. It's so terrible. I encourage you, go and read Deuteronomy 28 and understand something of the gravity of what it meant to break covenant with God. I mean, the judgments are terrible, terrible, terrible. I mean, uh, to the point that the people of Israel would be forced to commit cannibalism. I mean, this is how bad they were plunged into depravity because of their disobedience. 
And there's really no limit to that. So, again, um, what about the covenant with Adam today? Is the covenant, does, did what Adam did, does that have any significance for us today? Yes or no? And if it does, what is it? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? His death rained down through all of us, and our spiritual death as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So this is going back to what we looked at previously with original sin, right? I mean, we inherit his death sentence. We inherit his corruption. We inherit his, his um, you know, his guilt. His guilt is imputed to us. So, yeah, that's right. And in a sense, in Adam, as it says there in 1 Corinthians 5.28, in Adam, we all die. We all die. I like what John Murray says about this. John Murray, uh, by the way, he didn't like to use the word the covenant of works uh, because he did not see the word berit. He did not see uh, any equivalent to that. He refused to use the word covenant, which, you know, I can respect that. Uh, so he introduced his word, administration, even though the word administration is not in the text either. <laughs> but, you know, what I mean, it still was a way for him to get a, get a grasp on the relationship of Adam with man. But this is what John Murray said. He said, We all stood the probation in Adam as our representative head and failed in Adam. His sin was our sin, his fault, our fault, by reason of solidarity with him. And so because we are joined to him, um, that is where the consequences of sin come in. So Adam is our federal head. We still experience that. Romans 6, verse 23, we know that. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And people are still dying today because of Adam. You know, At UNT, I often ask students, why do we die? Right? Well, we die because um, we get old. Why do we get old? Well, because... Uh, cells are breaking down. Why do cells break down? Well, because second law of thermodynamics. Why is there a second law of thermodynamics? Well, because we live in a close, well, why do we live in a closed system? You know, and it just goes on and on. In other words, they have no answer for death, right? But we have the answer for death. The answer for death is that man sinned and death came through sin. Any questions, comments, objections? Yes, sir. Well, just another comment, too, that this, the, uh, the curse permeates through all aspects of the person, mm -hmm. like knowledge, physical ability, reasoning. Um, I mean, just all the complete person is corrupted as well. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's like the doctrine of total depravity. Mm -hmm. You know, every aspect of man is fallen because of edemic sin, edemic pollution, right? And, and, and we see that everywhere. I mean... It just baffles me that we live in a culture that still refuses to acknowledge the existence of evil, right? I mean, you see what's going on in the Middle East. You see the, you see the terrible news. You see the headlines, the beheadings. You see all of this, and people refuse to acknowledge that there is actual evil, or else they just live in contradiction to themselves. I mean, just this week, you know, what's his name? Um, David Cameron from um, uh, the British Prime Minister, he said that what ISIS did this week is pure evil, pure evil. And he's right, but he's inconsistent, right? Because abortion is evil, gay marriage is evil, lying is evil, corruption is evil, political intrigue is evil, all of that is evil, right? So man just wants to pick and choose what he deems as evil. And because of that, 
he cannot make proper judgments at the gate. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Another example of a inconsistency I think is interesting from recent current events is the NFL player uh, Ray Rice. You know, he got suspended because he punched his then girlfriend at the time, and so the NFL came down, knocked her out, yeah, and spit on her. On that because. You know, I'm up on the news, by the way, if you, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> I don't need any punch her, knocked her out, he spit oh, yeah. on her. Once, I mean, it's just vile. Once, once they claimed to have seen the video, then, of course, it was, you know, you're out, that sort of thing. However, NFL cares nothing about people who you know, cheat on their spouses, oh, yeah. people who have sex outside of marriage and have, you know, children in a wedlock. And so all these other things that are clearly wrong, you know, they, have, they, they care nothing about because and that's just the inconsistency of a... A worldview that that's not based in God's truth. Yeah. So, so you have you know certain things are kind of elevated above others. Yeah, that's based, right. Based on the feeling of the culture at the time. Yeah, that's right. That's why God's going to punish evil wherever it's found. You know, we can't pick and choose. Well, this, you know, you know, people like to say, you know, um, you know, how can there be God? I mean, how can a good God allow this to happen? X, Y, and Z. You know, and little do they know, you know, what they're really asking is, you know, a deeper question of, you know, what is God's relationship with evil? Well, as a matter of fact, God's going to deal with all evil, eradicate all evil, including lying and stealing. And that's why God's not just going to deal with the mass murderer and the rapist and the child molester. He's going to deal with the liar, the thief, the adulterer, the blasphemer. You know, he, he, he won't wink at any sin. You know, he's going to deal with all of it. Um, let me ask this question now. Uh, what is God's purpose in his covenant dealings with man? What is God's purpose in his covenant dealings with man? What is his purpose? What is he trying to accomplish? Yes, sir? Could you, what do you mean by purpose? What is his goal? What is his aim? What is his purpose? <laughs> <laughs> Why does he deal with... Show his holiness. His oh, very good. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So this is important then, right? I mean, they're basic, right? But, um, but uh, you know, to show his holiness, okay? Uh, to show his holiness uh, and to display his, his grace, right? To display his grace. Uh, we know that from the inception of covenants. Remember, Adam did not come up to God and say, put me in the garden, give me rules, and give me consequences and promises, <laughs> right? God came to Adam. He says he put the man there. So it was pure sovereign grace. Uh, what's the next covenant after Adam? Even if you don't agree that Adam was in covenant, what is the covenant? Where, where does the word berit, covenant, actually appear for the first time? With Noah. With Noah. You're too slow. <laughs> then again, everybody did just shout it out. So, Yeah, and it says in Genesis, look at Genesis 6, 18. Right. Yeah, 6, 18, it says there, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. Again, it's sort of the same divine imposition. And the reason why 
is because of his grace. Look at verse, back up to verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, does that mean that he, that he earned um, favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? He found favor as if, as if it's saying that, um, as if it's saying there that, that Noah did something that God was impressed by, right? No, no, what it means by Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord, it means that God decided to display his grace upon Noah, that he favored him, right, for his own sovereign purposes, right? So, so yeah, the reason why uh, God has chosen to interact with man in covenants uh, is because he wants to display his grace, his holiness, his moral perfections to us. Um, his faithfulness. I told you at the very beginning, God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps covenant with his people for all generations. His covenant faithfulness, right, is replete throughout the word of God. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 54 because there, Isaiah 54 sort of shows Noah becoming something of a pattern of how God's or how God deals with man, his covenant dealings with man. Isaiah 54, verse 9. Isaiah 54, verse 9. Let's see who can get there fastest. The people with print or the people with digital apparatuses? Who's going to get there the fastest? <laughs> Somebody, we're going to read that for us, verses 9 through 10. Uh, who's there? Jonathan, go ahead. For this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Mm. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Yes, that's right. That's right. <clears throat> wow, amazing. Amazing. Will not be shaken. He swore... He swore to uh, he swore to Noah, Shavah. He made an oath with Noah that um, that the waters would not flood the earth again. And consequently, I mean, you may disagree, but I got this from Edmund Clowney. He's the first guy that helped me to see this. But uh, what was the sign of the covenant with Noah? Oh, that's right. Redeem the rainbow, guys. It's our rainbow, right? It's not the culture's rainbow. It's our rainbow. Right? And and what what does the word rainbow mean? Uh, simple. The word rainbow. We translate it. We what's that? Well no, the word rainbow. Yes. The word rainbow, no, the word rainbow literally just means bow. As in bow and arrow. Okay? Give me some kind of Kudos for that. <laughs> right? And, in other words, uh, God told Noah, I will put my instrument of war in the sky. That's exactly what he told him. We see it as a rainbow now, right? But the literal Hebrew word just means bow, as in bow and arrow, as in an inch, a weapon, right? And which direction is the weapon facing? Right? He's not, he doesn't put the weapon like this, right? 
towards the earth, but the weapon is facing upward. Upward. How and why is it, on, on the basis of what justice, can God say, I am not going to flood the earth anymore? It is showing that the stipulation of even this covenant means that God's blood, in a sense, has to be shed. It's almost the equivalent of what you find in the Abrahamic covenant with the symbolic passing through the cut pieces of animal and God basically saying, this will happen to me if the covenant is broken. Of course, ultimately, we know that God did seal his covenant bond with his people in blood, the blood of his son, right? How is it that man will be averted the wrath of God? By God taking the wrath upon himself. Just amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, so, a little bit of a side note there, but it's a display, in other words, of his mercy and of his grace. We know uh, that everything ultimately is going to be for the display of the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, uh, verses uh, 3 to 14, especially verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, all of it say very plainly that what, what he's doing there is for the praise of the glory of his grace. So he's trying to magnify his grace in what he does. The other reason why he, um, why what the purpose of God uh, is in covenants or why he does it this way is for the unfolding, we can say, Unfolding of redemption. The unfolding of redemption. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Redemption is based on a promise. Redemption is based on a promise. And the original promise is that God would redeem us through the seed of the woman, right? He would crush the head of the serpent and um, defeat our enemies, right? And uh, he would be the deliverer. And then what you have throughout the rest of the Bible is seed theology, descendant theology, until we get to the prototypical seed, the descendant, Jesus. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants, plural, of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, the covenants of promise, is that it is, um, it is articulate. It means the promise. The English text doesn't bring out the article, but it's literally saying the covenants of the promise. <laughs> the covenants of the promise, which of course the promise being the revealing of God's redemptive purposes in Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise. Uh, boy, I have so much to say about this. Um, the unfolding of redemption throughout redemptive history stresses the unity of the biblical covenants. In other words, how the promise is going to come about through all of these biblical covenants that are given to us. Isn't that amazing? Um, 
You see, you see maybe a little bit of the unity of this even in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's very important in this genealogy to put Jesus in these covenant heads, these covenant representatives, Adam and Abraham, or excuse me, Abraham and David, to put Jesus in these covenant representatives. Um, yeah, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, a verse that has massive implication that we tend to, that we tend to, I don't want to say trivialize, but we sort of minimize the potency of this verse because the words are, we take the words to be so personal, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. As many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. And therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God. So what is that saying? In other words, it's saying that all of God's promises find their fulfillment, their completion, their amen, find their yes in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Whatever old covenant promise you can think about is ultimately going to be fulfilled through Christ. It's just amazing. Um, and then uh, talk about the unity of the covenants is basically to talk about the unity of the Bible, that there is one great unfolding purpose, one great unfolding plan that is running throughout the entirety of Scripture. And this is what theologians love to debate about, is how does it run through Scripture, right? Does it run through covenants? Does it run through dispensations? Is it a little bit of both, right? Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Because this has always been God's plan. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> this is all of his plan, his eternal purpose, his covenant. This is a, a pillar text of the covenant of redemption that we're going to look at next week. Okay. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Everybody's waiting for that verse. I mean, quick, quick ones out there. Um, beginning in verse 8 says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Very amazing word there, mysterion. Which for ages has been hidden in God uh, who created all things. Now, some people would say there's only two ages. This age and the age to come. Well, yes, uh, maybe on an eschatological level, but don't, uh, Aeonios here is plural, so... There are ages, and when it uses ages in this way, it's just speaking of all the epochs of time that have happened, okay? All of the dispensations of the, of the, of the Bible. They were, uh, this mystery was hidden for ages. It has been hidden in God who created all things. What does it mean that it was hidden in God? What does it mean that it was hidden in God? Right? Anyone? This is not revealed? The... God's purpose. Where was God's purpose hidden? Hidden in God in what way? Where in God? <clears throat> Where in God? Yeah, that's important. I would say it was hidden in the mind of God. It was hidden in the eternal decrees of God. His eternal purpose that was not revealed until a specific time. Right? God had a secret <laughs> keeping it from all of us. And then marvelously revealing it to us in Jesus Christ. 
I, I like that kind of thing. It's divine comp- conspiracy. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What was God's eternal purpose? Well, to reveal his wisdom through the church. What does that mean, through the church? How through the church? How is his manifold wisdom revealed through the church? Manifold wisdom here is referring to the many ways in which God has dealt with man throughout redemptive history. Okay? And this promise, this purpose that he had from all the way back to, from the beginning. That purpose, that great purpose now revealed through the church. What does that mean? What does that mean through the church? Is the church proclaimers of the purpose? Yes. Is... What's that? I was saying the church was, was given scripture as well, first century church, through the apostles. So that's another way that God's mysteries have been revealed. Uh, here, here's a fascinating, uh, let's make it a little bit more, com- we got five minutes, let's make it harder here, a little bit more complex. Uh, through the church, to the rulers, watch this, and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who is that? Angels? Okay. The angels, right? Um, some would even include demons, right? Um, yeah, so again, through the church, I take that to mean, yes, the church is uh, proclaiming this mystery, right? The, the church, I would say the church is the mystery. The church is the mystery. So what is happening here is that by the creation of the new covenant church, the New Testament church, uh, God's m- manifold plan has come out. <laughs> this is what he's doing. He is creating a whole new humanity made up of every tongue, tribe, nation, people, right? In the world, in Christ. That is what God is doing. Whole new human race. That's why, the, I think, the covenant with Adam is so important. Adam had his race, Jesus has his race. And the church is the manifestation of that people, that race, that holy nation, that royal priesthood, to use the language of 1 Peter chapter 2. Any questions, comments, statements, disagreements? Cries of outrage and... Huh? A lot to think about though, right? Okay, no one? All right, I always want to leave room for questions or comments. I just think it's magnificent how God has this unfolding plan and how the plan reaches its ultimate apex in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the great uh, climax of all of Scripture. Right? He, he, he is it. Man, I'm out of time. I want to talk more about that. Let's pray and we'll go to worship. Father... Lord, help us to uh, continue to understand your word in such a way that we can appreciate the great plan of redemption that you do have, that we can appreciate all that you've done and all that you've accomplished in your son, Jesus, that we understand, Lord, that what we have in Christ is a savior that fulfills all of your promises. 
and that all, everything, Lord, that was promised to those in the old covenant, we see, Lord, the fulfillment of that now. And Lord, we just pray, God, that you would help us to glorify your grace as we talked about. The reason why you've done this is to magnify your grace. And so, Father, we pray that we would glory in your grace, magnify your grace, that we would exalt in the grace of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.